welcome to episode 5 of the Angling Live podcast. Today's guest you might recognise off the telly. He's the co-presenter of On the Bank on BT Sport. He's a producer, a director, a university lecturer and also an England international fly angler. Of course, it's Mr Andy Ford. Andy, how you doing mate? I'm good thanks Mark, how are you doing? I'm good, mate. I'm good. Busy, busy, but yeah, good. Um, so yeah, what have you been up to, mate? It's, uh, the weather's been a bit weird recently, hasn't it? I mean, it's been cool, up, it ever? Yeah. up and um, down. You can't get two anglers together without starting to talk about the weather, can you? Especially not um, at this time of year. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? This is probably one of my favourite times of year to fish in the spring because it's, it's where everything sort of seems to like wake up, you know. Um, of course, as you know, I'm a fly angler. So one of the things that we're allowed to do that the course anglers aren't is fish rivers. Um, and as we chat to, today, you'll sort of work out that river fishing is my love. Uh, and of course, I'm allowed to fish rivers where, you know, I couldn't trot a stick float down a river, but I can cast a fly, which is uh, what I've been waiting to do for flipping months, as all of us have. And then the weather turns up and it's bright sunshine, but freezing cold and easterly wind. And, you know, the fish aren't rising and... It all gets a little bit tough, to be honest. So it's been a bit of an odd one, that's for certain. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the easterly wind's been the killer, really. I mean, um, I, I haven't been on the bank much myself, but uh, I keep koi. And what I found yeah. is, that, you know, the water temperature's going up from like 12 and then it's freezing overnight and it's going down to like 6. And the, the, the fish don't know whether they're coming or going. And I think I mentioned <laughs> it on a, on a previous podcast, the fact that the same must be happening on, on rivers and lakes in like a, a larger scale, probably not so much of a temperature difference. But... It just plays havoc with the fishing, doesn't it? It does. But I mean, one of the things I love about fishing is um, the process of problem solving. So wherever, whenever you go, whatever tactic you're using, whether it's sea fishing or carping or whatever else you're doing, there's a series of problems created by the activity of going, aren't there? You know, it might be too bright, too hot, too cold, whatever. And it's working out when you're there, what the problem is, and then how you actually get round it to, to get the... I suppose the enjoyment out of your day so I don't mind if it's a little bit challenging in fact I quite enjoy it and it then kind of makes the days when you have sort of a red letter day if you like all the more satisfying really I think that's part of the thing that attracts you to keep going back because it doesn't matter whether you do the same thing on the same piece of water over and over again it's actually always a little bit different no matter what you know what you've done previously. Yeah, I mean, I think I've mentioned to you before that I'm, I'm, yeah, my knowledge of fly fishing is uh, quite non-existent to be honest. So, you know, I'm, I'm interested into to learning and picking your brains on some stuff. And I, I want to get well, on. That won't the, take long. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to get onto the fishing a little bit later on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, please don't hang up. I, I'm a carp angler, but I did start oh, God. off. I, I know. I know. I did Nasty start off business. I know. I did. I did start off with, uh, you know, like your tench, your perch, you know, the actual match kind of fishing. Um, where I'd learn how to carp fish, I suppose. But one thing I'm going to bring up later on is, you know, your good mate Rob Hughes. He does a lot of underwater stuff. And Never I've heard been... of him. Rob who? <laughs> I'm not going to comment. Um, <laughs> yes, so I suppose for fly fishing, not only are you looking about, you know, looking at what's under the water, I'm guessing you're also analysing what's on top of it because, you know, you you need to... Is it called match the hatch? Am I just making something up there? Oh, steady um, on. But but, but we'll, we'll get on to that a bit later. I mean, yeah. what I want to know first is your story. So, you know, I'm looking at your, your Facebook profile now. And, um, you know, TV presenter, director, producer, editor, writer, uni lecturer, 
an international England international flying list. So there's quite a lot there. So how yeah. did a young Mr. Ford get into <laughs> get into fishing in general to become a presenter to lecture at uni? And are they linked? I can't remember how what being young's like, Mark. To be honest, it was quite a while ago. Um, yeah, I've been a weird old setup, I suppose. I mean, I started fishing when I was a kid, um, sort of seven years old, river fishing, trotting a stick float down um, a, a chalk stream. Um, I used to. I was r- born and raised in Berkshire, up near Newbury, and um, fished the river. I think it was either the Embourne or the Lambourne was my first ever river. Uh, caught my first fish of any note which was a great big roach or at least it seemed like it and then you know when you're a kid every fish looks enormous doesn't it and I've got this kind of picture in my head that this thing was probably about two and a half pounds in reality it was probably about two and a half ounces but even so I was kind of to to use the you know a sort of a naff sounding cliche I was hooked from that second Um, and I carried on fishing when I was a kid and fished on the Kennet a lot that's where I really learned how to fish and I'm an out and out course angler when I was a kid um loved my river fishing loved trotting a stick float fishing maggot you know fishing hemp for barbel on the kennet um still water fishing like you for tench perch anything that swam really and i, I really enjoyed and there was a, a lake up near or a little pond actually not even a lake where i grew up called bucklebury ponds which was full of little tiny genuine crucian carp and you know fishing little bits of sweet corn for them on a on a um a little sort of um, still water blue, Drennan still water blue. How about that for a memory of a float? Um, you know, I'm sure um, a lot of people will remember those, but fishing those for the Crucians on this little pond was just heaven. And actually, what kind of happened then, I ended up not fishing anymore from the age of about, I suppose, 12 or 13 till probably after I'd been married for quite a long time because I. I played cricket um, when I was a lot younger um, and I played to a decent level, ended up sort of playing all over the place. And that kind of took over my life, really, as well as having to go to work. So I didn't really have time for fishing. And I sort of stumbled back into it um, after we had children. So I've got two kids, um, Ben and Emily. And my wife said when I was I must have been about 30, I reckon, maybe a little bit older. She said, you like fishing, don't you? Why don't you take the kids fishing? And we lived in Portsmouth at the time. And I took them there and we set them up with sort of little whips, essentially. So, a, you know, like a tiny little pole with a stick float on the end and chucked it into this pond. And again, they got the experience I got when I was little. Float goes under, you lift up and there's a roach on the end. Two power And they were hooked as well. Uh, yeah, probably two, maybe two and a half, actually. <laughs> and, and that kind of got me back into fishing. I then sort of w- rekindled my love for the sport and just carried on, started doing some match fishing, found the joys of internet um, angling forums, made a few friends, and, you know, then got invited out to go to events and things and, and haven't looked back since, really. No, do, do you think your initial experience on the rivers, you said, like, as a young seven-year-old, you were actually trotting floats on the rivers, do you think that kind of has influenced your kind of angling or preferred angling discipline today? I mean, I, I started off a very similar time, um, probably seven or eight years old but it was it was all on lakes so you know obviously you saw people catching the carp and as a young a young kind of angler I suppose you're looking at it going I want to do that whereas yours you were exposed I think the rivers exposes you to a lot more than a normal lake I would have thought I think probably um, you're not a million miles away 
Um, I mean, I'm very fortunate where I live. Um, I think around here, so I live in Hampshire near Winchester. I'm surrounded by rivers, beautiful chalk streams. You know, the places that I'm lucky enough to go to fish are stunning places. I'm 100% um, aware of how lucky I am. But growing up fishing the Kennet, the Kennet is a stunning river and just being there is good for your soul. You know, just walking along the bank and seeing the river flowing past you. And then when you realise if you st stick a couple of pints of maggots in or uh, follow them down with a, a stick float, it goes under and there's a seven or eight pound barbel on the end. That's enough to keep you, you know, engaged for the rest of your life. And I'll never forget that sort of experience when I was younger, um, having a go at that sort of fishing and seeing what was there, you know, chub fishing catching great big perch from little snaggy holes and things like that on the on the Kennet with a worm on the end and just freelining it into these little tiny tree root areas where the perch lived in the slacks and catching sort of pound and a half, two pound perch. Just heaven, absolute heaven. And it's never left me, never left yeah. me. I, I mean, that, that's that's more, I suppose, my experience was you, you build up a swim on a lake to, and you, you kind of... You wait for something to come along, so you're not really targeting a certain species, really. But your kind of experience, where, like you said, you you would look actually targeting at that age, or maybe slightly older, like perch and and, and barbel, where I think I think part of that's missing now from you know the 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 young guys getting into angling, really. Um, well, I think that it is missing in certain respects, but I think it's still there. I know a lot of people that do this, and not all of them are really old, crusty blokes like us. Um, I'll throw you in under the bus there a little bit, Mark. I do apologise, but, you know. Um, I mean, the thing is, I'm very impatient. I'm a busy bloke. Um, so I don't actually enjoy sitting and staring at my rod tip um, you know, or waiting for a buzzer to go off. For me, I like to be busy. I like to explore where I'm fishing. So if I'm on a river, I'll fish, you know, as many different swims as I can. I have, of course, um, been through days where I've stayed in one place and, you know, fed a swim up and stuff. And actually some of the best days fishing I've ever had um, have been exactly that. You know, you actually stay there and build a swim, as you've, have you, as you've described. But the still water thing where you just kind of sat in a chair staring out, I, I do it and I do enjoy it. Don't get me wrong but it's not my go-to. Um, so I think I need to be busy and I need to be changing something all the time. Something needs to be happening, um, you know, every couple of minutes. Otherwise I'm, I'm lethal. I get bored and it's, it's not good. Yes. It's like a, I suppose a, a proactive way of fishing, isn't it? So you, exactly. You, you, yeah. kind of, you see something or oh, got to make a change. Um, is that what you think draws you to fly fishing? Um, Cause it yes, changes I think so it quickly. Is. Yeah, it does. And it's not just something's hatching, so you have to change a fly. That's not what fly fishing's about at all. Um, so obviously the thing about fly fishing is you're obviously not putting any bait in the water. So if you spot a fish, first of all, you've got to, again, it goes back to that problem solving thing of trying to work out how you're going to get it. So you've got to work out A, what it's eating, if it's eating anything, B, you know, whether it's actually in the mood to feed on something else and see how you get whatever it is you're presenting to that fish. So you might see a great big trophy trout in the middle of the stream and think, right, that's eating olives, but it's only eating them at half depth or it's not rising. How am I going to get my nymph down to where that fish is without walking up, skylining it and spooking it? And, you know, and then you've got the whole sort of conundrum of 
tying on tippet that is so fine that it doesn't affect your presentation but not so fine that if you do manage to hook the fish you get smashed up in a nanosecond and the whole exercise was was worthless so there's this whole thing going on and the second you've spent i don't know let's say 10 minutes trying to catch this fish whether you catch it or not there's another fish 20 yards away so there's a whole different set of problems to solve then and it just it's a constant adventure it's a constant search for that you know again problem solving scenario where you think okay that's a different fish ah that one is rising i'll need to put a dry on what you know what's it eating all that sort of stuff it just keeps on going and keeps on going and the other thing is exploring these fantastic environments that we're lucky enough to to be able to you know to go into I mean, some of the rivers I fish, the countryside, you'd be happily walking around there without a fishing rod at all, just staring at the beautiful stuff around you and, the, you know, seeing kingfishers and other stuff. It's just fabulous. So that's, I think that's what attracts me to the fly fishing side of things. Yeah. And so like I mentioned, I, I'm a carp man. And I've got my own kind of theory on feeding carp. And um, I'm intrigued to see whether it's the same for... Um, like your trout and stuff for the flies. So I, I believe in, in carp fishing, and a lot would probably disagree with me, there's two types of, of, of take that you'd get, and it's either curiosity or it's f- feeding fish. So, but by that I mean, you know, I think a, a carp will take a bait, like a, a high-vis pop-up, just because it wonders what it is. Is that the same for, for fly fishing? Do you get not a feeding situation, but actually the fish thinking, what what is that, rather than... 100%, yeah. Uh, there's no question um and i I, can i add a third thing to that um because trout are very territorial and also quite aggressive and predatory there's the whole come near me and i'll smash your face in scenario um you know if you actually you can irritate a trout into taking even if it's not eating and it's not just curious it's just annoyed and it will bite whatever goes near it really Um, that there's yeah no question i mean people sometimes i think forget a little bit that trout are out and out predators they've got very sharp teeth some of the bigger fish you know they're not that size by eating little tiny bugs and things that they're that size because they eat other fish sometimes quite big fish yeah i think we're going to get onto a really big trout a little bit later on i think andy actually (laughs) yeah so 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 when did you um so obviously we've covered the bit where you started on on the rivers and stuff when did you pick up your first fly rod uh, well, I, I, I think I need to take you a little bit backwards because it's kind of come in a strange direction, all of this. So what, what happened was I ended up um, working as a sports journalist. Um, and I started doing that when I was kind of, I started as a journalist when I was 17 um, up in Newbury, uh, working for all the national newspapers and things like that. Didn't particularly enjoy doing news very much. And I've always loved my sport. And as I said, I played cricket. So I ended up moving down to Portsmouth to, to become a sports journalist. And one thing led to another. I spent 11 years there covering professional football, first class cricket, all sorts of stuff. And then I started to have a little look at working in TV, which I really enjoyed. Well, we did little bits of it from the agency that I used to work for. Um, and I kind of followed my nose a little bit, ended up going to ITV. Then I went freelance and ended up working for Sky Sports where I spent about 11 or 12 years working as a freelancer. And while I was there, I spotted they had a fishing program called Tight Lines, which most of the, the guys listening to this will probably remember. And I just sent a random email to the producer one day, a really nice guy called Mick Brace, saying, you know, I'm a journalist. If you ever need anybody to do anything to do with fishing, you know, give me a shout. 
And actually, you replied straight back and said, funnily enough, yes, we do need somebody. What are you kind of doing next week? So I ended up being dragged into their team. And that's, funnily enough, um, this is going to be a short story long. No, it's not. It's going to be a long story short, really. <laughs> I ended up having to learn how to fly fish because they used to send me out to make films with some phenomenal fly anglers. And, you know, there's me sitting in a boat. I can remember it like it was yesterday with a bloke called Craig Barr, who at the time was an extraordinarily high-profile angler. I think at the time he was actually the England manager. Um, his brother Ian is double world fly fishing champion, twin brother. You know, these guys are off the planet, fantastic fly angler. And there's me, a complete numpty, sat in a boat next to him, not being able to cast for toffee, completely clueless. And I just thought, you know, you look like a fool. You've got to do something about it. So that's kind of how I started my fly fishing journey. So you've answered one of my questions. Did you end up in trees and stuff like the rest of us? I mean, I've attempted it once and it was, I think that's what put me off. I've never, I was never shown how to do it properly, I think. And I was just trying my best and it was just, yeah, I suppose frustrating until you master it. Um, well, the easiest way to avoid casting into a tree is very simple. Don't avoid. fish near a tree. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was the bonus of fishing with Craig Barr because he was fishing from a boat in the middle of reservoir, in the uh, middle of a great big reservoir. And if I'd hit a tree from there, my casting would have been a bit too good for words. And it certainly well. wasn't. Yeah. So you're drifting in open water. Now, I'm not saying I didn't hit other things like myself in the back of the head, him in the back of the head, the side of the boat, the engine, you know, pretty much hitting the water was a bonus. But it's quite addictive because, again, I, I mean, you know, I suppose the problem solving thing comes into it once more because I hate being rubbish at stuff. And when I realised I wasn't very good, I, I, I realised I had to do something about it. So I got my wife bought me some um, casting lessons. I think it was for my 40 or 39th or 40th birthday. And um, went down to my local Stillwater, which is just down the road from me, me on Springs. And they gave me a few casting lessons and I got to the point where I was able to cast a line. And, and that kind of, once I could do that, once I could present a fly and see that you could get a fish to take it and stuff, I kind of, it just became too much to, to, to ignore. I just enjoyed it so much. It was, um, it's just such a good thing. Yeah, so I think once you master the actual cast and like you said, be able to present a fly, you're then able to think about other things so you're not concentrating on the cast as much now you're thinking about you're watching the water more you're watching you know sh sh what should i be doing next to do with flies or the, the other thing mate is it's very much a lot of it's sight fishing you know so i mean you know what it's like floater fishing or sight fishing for carp on the surface in the summer you know it's it's such a an adrenaline rush when you see a big fish and you think oh okay if i can get that to take and you go through the process well pretty much that's if excuse me every time you go um, trout fishing or even grayling fishing come to that you get that opportunity to spot a trophy fish and then try to fool it and it's just so satisfying it's it really is good fun yeah of course so, so did you do anything with tight lines obviously you said that you you sent the email and then yeah i mean I've, i spent 11 or t about eight or nine years working as their on-screen reporter um, I was lucky enough to present the programme three or four times as well. Um, when Keith Arthur, the regular presenter, was on holiday, they sent me to about eight or nine world championships. So I travelled all over Europe um, filming course fishing world championship, um, following the progress of the England float fishing team uh, with guys like Alan Scott Horn, who's five times world champion. 
Um, you know, these guys became a lot of them very good mates of mine. I still consider a couple of them really good friends, guys like Des Ship. Um, he's one of the best course anglers, not just in the UK, but in the world. And um, covering loads of events like Fishermania, which is their, um, the blue ribbon sort of course fishing event that's still live on Sky every year. Um, so, yeah, I, I covered an awful lot of fishing and lucky enough to make an awful lot of films about the sport we all love. Yes, yeah, so, so I watched Fishermania. Um, was it last year? I think. No, I don't think it was on last year. Was it? Was it? Yes, it before? was. It's been on every year. Oh, was it? I don't think oh, okay. I missed I it. Didn't, no, I didn't know whether COVID had uh, put pay to it. But um, yeah, I was, I was watching that. And are the presenters there? Are they anglers themselves? I mean, some um, are, some aren't. And, and that was yeah. one of the reasons that I got the gig because obviously I'm an angler. Keith's an angler. Um, a couple of the other um, people involved were very much non-anglers and cut their teeth reporting on football, reporting on, you know, rugby league, you name it. Um, some of the female presenters have never seen a fish or a fishing rod in their lives, but they're good journalists, so they're able to tell the story of what's going on um, in front of them, whether it's, you know, they might not know a roach from a, uh, I don't know, a banana, some of them, but uh, certainly not when they start. They do when they finish, uh, but, you know, that it's not, it's a, there's a good variety of people who've got a different set of skills and it's just a really interesting programme to be involved in that. Yeah, I think that's where the, the professionalism comes in with the journalism, being able to cover something that you haven't got the subject matter knowledge in, um, but you're Listen, able to, to follow the... I've covered yacht racing, Mark. Yacht racing. Wow. I don't know the sharp end, blunt end, big sail thing. Yacht racing. No idea. Covered it three years running. So, so with that, do you just get a brief then and you've got to stand there and, and cover um, the, the event with the basic knowledge you've got, hoping that you say things right? Or is it just you've got to memorise it or do a bit of research? Um, I go into all of these stories uh, with the same theory, which is blissful ignorance, but a vast amount of curiosity. So I think it's I don't think it's difficult to cover an event you know nothing about because all sports are actually not just about the sports. They're about the people involved in them. And if you interview the people and ask them what they're doing, most people will tell you you don't have to know what they're doing as long as they know what they're doing and you're asking them the right questions. Then you're in a good, good position, um, which is exactly what the, the yacht racing scenario was. Sport is full of characters, fascinating people who are dedicated to their cause, to their sport. They spend hours, days, weeks, months, years, you know, fining their craft down to become the very best they can be. And, you know, they're often really proud of what they do and their skills are extraordinary. So the job of a, a filmmaker, which is, you know, what I've now become, is to find out about those people and to explore their skill set and to tell their story to people who don't know anything about them or, or maybe not as much about them as, as they should and they're curious. So I, I'm happy to go into a situation where I don't know anything about the sport um, as an ignorant and very curious person. Yeah, uh, it's, and that to me is a skill. It's a skill that you, you've you either got or you've learned to have, being able to put, be put in a situation, keep your call and be able to, you know, c cover something that you know nothing about. I mean, you do, um, you lecture at a uni, don't you? I do, yeah. Um, what, 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 what subject do you... Um... I, I teach rocket science now. Um, oh, no, I don't. Sorry, that was something else. No, I teach sports journalism. They wouldn't let me do rocket science. Um, so I teach uh, students how to make TV, basically. So um, I'm, I'm teaching them how to 
um, cut football um, packages and uh, packages of you know self-contained little items with people's voiceover in them and stuff like that. We teach them how to broadcast live, um, how to edit, how to present, um, just how to tell stories in a in a visual format. Really, that's the the nature of the beast. Um, I teach from all the way through the uni, so I teach um, first, second, third years, and master students how to do it, like making documentaries, stuff like that. Okay, so it's like the the construction, and um, do you teach them how to be journalists, or are they already journalists no, when they come to you? No, they're straight out of A levels normally. Um, so yeah, it's from the ground up. They're they're learning how to become journalists in in various different formats, from print to radio to video. I only look after the video side of it really. We, I've got other colleagues who are newspaper reporters, radio reporters, and you know teachers, expert lecturers, who who teach them the other elements that they need to know to get their degree. Yeah, I think I've actually been in your studio. You have. Yeah, and I, I was just like, yeah, surrounded by buttons and people shouting out cues and stuff yes. like that. And it's, uh, I think probably a lot of people don't realise how organised it actually is and how kind of, um, I suppose, scheduled it is. Um, and I suppose it's got to be, you know, somebody that's been in the business for as long as you have, um, you know the ins and outs of it. But when you watch something on TV, whether it's live or even something that's been pre-recorded and put together, the amount of work that goes into that, sometimes I don't think people actually realise um, how long it actually takes and what's required. No, certainly what people don't see is the number of people behind the scenes who are putting, pressing those buttons, operating the cameras, etc. All you've got to really do, you know, I don't know about you, but I love fiction. I love watching films. Um, watch the credits at the end of a Hollywood film, see how many people are involved. I'm not saying that that's the number of people involved in making all um, video productions. Of course it isn't. But it does give you a picture of how many different jobs there are to do. You know, just to get one person on air, there could be probably another 10 people involved behind the scenes whose names will never be heard. Um, As you say, pressing buttons, carrying kit from A to B switching stuff around, making sure the audio works, making sure the lights are working in the right way, making sure the feed of the video is going in the right place, all that sort of stuff. It is a very complex world, but it's a great, great one to be involved in. Yeah, and it, it always looks, well, it appears when you watch like a live um, TV show that the actual the presenter is the one under the pressure and that kind of stuff. But really, I haven't seen the, the back end of it. Really, the presenter's got like the easiest job because they've got to... Um, as long as they know what they're going to say. that It's the people behind setting up the cues and make sure the right screen comes in at the right time and the camera angles and stuff like that. Um, and that, it, was an eye, it was an eye-opener for me when it's, I went down there. It's a bit like, I suppose, um, a director's like a conductor, you know, um, controlling the orchestra, playing a tune, and if he doesn't call the violins at the right time, it all goes Pete Tong. So, yeah, you're, you're right. There's a lot going on, hell of a lot. Yeah. So... Moving on to On the Bank then. So you, you uh, co-present On the Bank with Rob Hughes, don't you? I know you said that you didn't know him. Um, <sighs> I'm going to have I, to admit it, aren't I, I? I think, I think you'd lie. I've seen you together on I know, screen. I do know him. No, normally you're having a go at him for Carpangle and he's calling you a fluff chucker, normally. Yep. Um, so, so how did that come about then? Uh, well, that's... Just the people, the listeners here, On the Bank is um, is on BT Sport. It um, is. So Hughesy and I first met um, when we were working together, funnily enough, at Fishermania. Um, they, they, for some reason best known to themselves, decided that he was an expert in something. And I can't remember what that was. It might have been the weather. I think it was the weather. Um, it can't have been anything <laughs> else because, you know, as we know, it's Husey. 
And they called him in and at pe various periods during the afternoon as the, the Fishermania final went ahead, they went over to Rob and said, what's the weather doing, Rob? And he said, it's sunny or it's windy or it's raining or something. Anyway, I'm sure he said some other stuff as well, but never mind. So we ended up having a beer and chatting as you do at these events. And then, you know, we sort of became mates and have carried on being mates ever since. And when the sad day arrived um, a little while ago, and I think it's probably five or six years ago now, Sky decided to take about 20 odd of their studio programmes off air um, because they decided they were too expensive to run. And one of the casualties of that, unfortunately, was tight lines which was an absolute disaster for, for lots of us. I mean, you know, anglers love watching stuff on telly. Um, and, you know, if you're not fishing or thinking about fishing, being able to see it on screen is a massively uh, beneficial thing. So Husey and I had a little conversation. He's got his own TV production company. And he said, would I fancy working with him to produce a show? BT Sport became involved. They said that they'd be very interested in seeing what we could produce. We made a programme, and for some reason best known to themselves, they really liked it. And so did, it seems, lots of other people, which is a bit weird, really. Yeah. Um, we're now, I think we've made eight seasons. Eight seasons of us two talking nonsense about eight. fishing. Wow. I know, it's a lot of programmes. Yeah. And, you know, we're just, we're in the middle of producing stuff for season number nine, and there's other stuff coming. It's it's great. It, it really is great. And even though I have yeah. to work with him a lot, it seems to be all right. Yeah. So obviously, what I say now, you haven't got to answer it, but who decides the kind of um, the content? Are, are you and Rob left to to produce the shows or are you told, right, there's got to be a certain element of this or an element of this? We're or... in complete command of our own density, uh, destiny. Um, Husey's largely clueless, but um, he does come up with the odd good idea and then it's down to me to make sure when he messes it all up it gets fixed and then it becomes a bit of a, an adventure and the problem, in all seriousness, it's a, we work together very well as a team uh, and I know I pull yeah. his leg all the time but actually the two of us are, are very different people, we've got very different skill sets and I think that probably is why it works because we, we approach things in a slightly different way um, you know, he's got more energy. He's like a toddler on acid. I mean, you know, the bloke's all over the place in a good way. Um, and I'm a little bit more methodical normally. And the, the two things match up quite well. And, you know, we, we're always for like, I mean, you're never if you're an angler, you're never short of an idea of something to do, are you? you you've always got something. No. Let's try a new lake. Let's meet a new person. Here's a new technique. Here's a new place to go. It's just there's just so much. I don't think you'd ever run out of ideas. Let's fly fish for carp. Was, um, <laughs> now then. Yeah. I mean, I mean the, the idea, uh, I know it's been brand, it was branded around for years, but I think it, it's only really been um, been thrown in the, the last couple of years, hasn't it? Um, and didn't Rob do a show on that? Um, well, he did. On, on the, on the... Yes, he did. But the one that you're thinking about isn't the first time that um, the concept of fly fishing for carp was introduced to On The Bank viewers. Um, okay. He did something uh, with one of his mates uh, a little while ago, but we'd already shown how you can catch carp on the fly because I don't know if you know, but On The Bank has a, a little tradition where we, he and I fish against each other um, for a pound, the On The Bank pound. And as you may right. know and probably do, Husey, for reasons best known to himself, 
has been double world champion in carp fishing. So he's quite good he at it. Won the world championship twice, which ain't bad, is it? He's also been he's quite a good... England manager. You know, he's, he's good at what yeah. he does. It's a good credential to it's have. It's decent. It's decent. So when he proposed that we would have a match off for the on the bank pound, floater fishing for carp, guess what he thought would happen? He would kick my backside all around the venue. And what actually happened yep. was I beat him six fish to three. And okay, I think so I were you on the fly? I was and, on the fly. Was he, he, was, he was on dog biscuit. He was on dog biscuit with, uh, with a bubble float, the traditional method of trying to catch carp with bubble float. And he was honestly, I've, uh, it was very funny. Very, very funny. I enjoyed wow. that very, very much. Yeah. Can I just Did tell he, you, um... he's, he's, he is, as he says, the most competitive man in the world, apart from me. Oh, yeah, without a shell of a doubt. Apart, apart yeah. from me. I go about it a bit more quietly. Apart, apart from you? Yes. Yeah. Are, are you one of these guys that like plays Monopoly with your family at Christmas, and if you're losing, you throw the board in? Oh, yeah. no. No, no. I, no, I, no I, I'm, I'm, I accept that I've lost, but it doesn't mean I don't want to win, believe me. <laughs> I don't throw my toys, but... If I tell you that after I beat him 6-3, and just let's mention that again, double world champion Rob Hughes, fishing for yeah. carp, which he was double yeah. world champion at doing, gets beaten 6-3 by a fluff chucker. Yeah. Just let that sink I, in. I, I don't me. think he... Yeah, I don't think he... Um, he didn't broadcast that a lot, he, did he? He doesn't like, like to I, talk about it, Mark. Doesn't like to talk about no. it. No. If I tell you that after it had happened and we'd done our closer, Rob had to go for a little walk around the lake. To calm himself down, he was quite upset. Have a word with himself. Have a word with himself. Yeah. And funnily enough, soon wow. afterwards, he did a film about fly fishing for carp. I think my work here yeah. is done. <laughs> You're never ever going to let him live that down. Oh no, you? absolutely not. No, and I, I bet you framed that pound as well, haven't you? Yeah, we have them for actually. In all seriousness, we do have them in frames with a little plaque on. Wow, amazing. Okay. <laughs> that's that's brilliant. Um, so, so yeah, obviously, I don't know whether you can tell me what, what's what's next for the show. Are you uh, what's coming up? Well, we got, um, funnily enough, Hughes is very busy at the moment, and he's the person who uh, has been dealing with BT Sport through all of this to to sort out when the schedules are. So I have to say, I actually don't know what we're doing next. Um, so, so you could get a phone call, and then it'll be right. Could you come here and, yeah. and do this? Well, not then, not so much okay. that. It's just what we tend to do is. Um, there are sort of three separate elements. So Hughesy will go off and do carp films or other stuff. I'll do fly fishing films or other stuff. And then we'll meet in the middle somewhere and we'll do stuff together. And that's how the programmes get made. And it's usually um, just trying to find time in both of our diaries because we're both very busy people so that we can get together and, and meet up and do our fishing films. So that's the way it works. And just, at the, the, just the way the cards are fallen at the moment, I'm madly busy at uni. And Rob's madly busy. I think he's moved house. So it's just a case that we haven't had the conversation of where it's happening. Um, as far as I know, we're doing a spring special, which I think is due on telly in about three weeks' time, um, during which time I will be putting on a film of a quite big fish I caught not very long ago, which I think you wanted to talk about. I did, yeah. So uh, how did that come about? We, we I know you've got it on, on camera, and like you said, it's going to be showing an episode in three weeks' time. Um, was that the target species? Well, technically speaking, I suppose you could say yes, it was. I mean, Diva is famous the world over for its big fish. It, it, they stock enormous fish. Um, bottom line is you go there to catch the fish of a lifetime. And it's not really my bag. It's not the sort of fishing I do very much of at all. 
um, I, as, as you've already mentioned, I fish rivers. So I got invited over by a chap called Peter Cockwill, who's a tremendous big fish angler, a real veteran of the sport. I think Peter's in his 70s now, but has held numerous world records over the years. And he's now kind of the resident pro at Diva Springs. So we wandered over there to do a film. And he said it's basically sight fishing for specimen fish, which is right up my, my street. I really enjoy it. So they've got rainbow trout, huge ones, double figure fish double-figure brownies, and this other species, which is called a spark tick, which actually isn't a trout. It's a species of a char. It's a, um, a type of char, like an Arctic char. It's, um, it's a combination of an Arctic char and an American brook trout. They do occur naturally in some far-flung corners of the world, and they've stocked these things in, in Diva Springs, and you can see these things cruising around. You know, they're huge rainbows, and you can very easily pick them out because they're bright silver and they've got a big purple flash down the side. And then there's the brownies, which are a little bit moody and disappear. And then you've got this other stuff going on with these spark ticks, and they just look different to everything else. So we've gone into a lake which has all three in them, and Peter's kind of idea was that we just try and catch one and see what it looks like on camera, and that's how it all started, really. Yeah, I mean, they're an aggressive-looking fish, aren't they? Amazing. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. When you see them cruising about, actually, they look like carp because they're quite short in the body, but they're really broad across the shoulders, like a great big sort of double figure. You know, you see a 15-pound carp cruising about, you know it's a proper fish. And these these things are the same. You sort of see, and they're in a different bit of the water as well. So they're kind of not quite as high up as a brownie would go when it's feeding on dries, but much higher than a rainbow. They're in a world all of their own. So you see this thing cruise past, and I had a little stalking bug. So basically, like, um, I suppose it's a, a fly with really heavy tungsten eyes and a bit of white marabou tail. So it looks like a little tiny bug. They're only an inch long. And you just kind of jig them, and it makes the tail work like a lure. So the idea is okay. you wait for one of these creatures to swim past, whether it be a rainbow or brownie or anything else, and then you jig this thing past its nose to see if you can attract it to take. And this thing just opened its mouth and swallowed the fly, and it was just the most incredible experience ever. It sailed off into the middle of the lake, took about 10 minutes to land, all of which is on camera, and I'm lucky enough that my son, um, Ben, who's 23 now, is my cameraman. So he was filming the whole thing. We've landed this oh, beast, and Peter said, that's the biggest spark tick that's ever been caught. And I said, what? And we got the guys over from the fishery, and of course they, they stock it, so they remembered putting a couple of big fish in, but this thing's obviously grown on. You know, you, yeah. you look at the pictures of it, and it looks like a beast. I mean, you know, you wouldn't want to go near it and have your arm off. No, not at all. I mean, I mean, as soon as, soon as it took the fly, uh, I'm not saying you knew... How, how big it was actually going to be, and obviously dealing onto the world record. But you, I'm guessing you knew it's one of these spark dicks, just the yeah. way it took the fly, well, the way it zoomed off. No, I targeted it. You could see it was a different fish, so you knew it was a spark dick oh, by okay. where it was cruising in the water column. You know, the, the rainbows kind of zoom in, hover around. This thing was cruising, as I say, cruising around like a carp. Yeah. So I knew it was a spark dick, but when I hooked it, I had no idea it was as big as it was. Yeah, how big was it? Fifty. Eleven pounds fifteen ounces. Eleven pound fifteen. Yeah, I knew it was something like. Wow. And that's the previous that's world insane. record is nine pounds seven or something. Okay. So, so do you think there's bigger in there? No, I don't think. Well, not at the moment, but that's not to say there won't be at some point. Um, 
Yeah. You know, and I'm sure these things, so these are a reasonably new species to UK shores. It's not something we've seen very much of and they end up in these fisheries. They're, they're bred on. So I'm sure they'll yeah. become bigger. But, you know, just extraordinary experience. Just amazing. Is it something you'd go back and, and go for again? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, or, uh, um, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I caught a 15-pound rainbow trout in the afternoon. Uh, and that was an okay, experience so. in itself. You know, my biggest rainbow before yeah. that was seven or eight, which is a big fish. This thing's like a salmon. I mean, it's huge. You see it, and it actually, bizarrely, catching the rainbow trout was a better piece of angling than catching the world record spark tick. Because the, the, the big rainbow was quite a long way out in the lake. You had to wait till you could see it. You had to put the cast in exactly the right place. It was a difficult cast in a crosswind. You know, the retrieval had to be perfect. And I just got it, it's just one of those where everything fell into to place. Plopped the fly in the right place, stripped it back past the fish and it took. And again, and that yeah. whole sequence of the cast, you know, it's all on camera, which is tremendous. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. So do, do, you, do you get out much? Do you, do you get out much to um, I suppose in all, do you film? The, in the a... reality is not as much as I'd like to um, because I'm a busy guy. And it, it just becomes one of those where often when I go fishing, it's because I've got to go and make a fishing film and that I don't want to sound like that's a problem because it certainly isn't and I know what a joy and, and how lucky I am to be able to do that even if I have to go with Husey it's still quite good fun and you know we go to some su such lovely places I'm supposed to go and film on the River Test next week um, to do a film for Orvis um, who've been just brilliant with me the last few like the last year 18 months um, and they've given me access to some of their chalk stream water to make some films for them. And I just, you know, even if I'm filming, what a place to be, what an environment. Um, so, yes, I am getting out, um, even if I'm taking a camera with me. And it does feel like I'm going fishing. I've been doing a little bit of um, sea fishing as well, which has been quite good fun. Actually fly fishing for mullet, which is the closest thing to going mad you'll ever see. But it's it's tremendously good fun. Yeah, so I mean, I, I was chatting to I had John Fluen on on the last. Uh, oh last yes, podcast. Mr. Fluen. Mr. Fluen, yeah, you know he's not Welsh, don't you? Well, it's not his fault, is it? You know, it's a bonus. No, it's not, no, it's not his fault. Oh, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose. Um, but yeah, so we were chatting about um, some of the famous carp anglers and how um, you know sometimes the because they have to produce, they have to create content. It kind of takes the fun out of the fishing. So I think the point I'm getting at here is with, with you because of the. Um, what you do it doesn't seem to to work that way with you i mean you, you seem to enjoy um you, you, your fishing it just happens to have a camera set up we we we've always said so I, I think you have to understand as a journalist whenever you go somewhere there's a story to be told if that story happens to be we've been here today and what we've done hasn't worked and we've blanked then that's the story we tell and that's happened quite yeah. a few times in the program not, not. I mean, you know, not in a situation where it shows we're absolutely useless, although we have had our useless moments. But, you know, sometimes the wind is from the east and things don't work, do they? And, you know, no. we tell the story how it is. What you see on the screen yeah. is what's actually happened. And we've had some stinkers. Whether you catch or yeah. not. But we've also yeah. had some fantastic, you know, I've had a £15 four-ounce barbel on telly. You know, what a fish wow. of a lifetime. Um, yes. extraordinary. So there are great days and there are bad days. And I think that's the thing. That's the thing about going fishing, isn't it? Sometimes it works. Yeah. Sometimes all the stars align and everything's fantastic. And other times it all goes completely wrong. And you end up thinking, do you know what? I wish I'd taken up golf. 
<laughs> yeah, then equally as bad as golf. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm awful at golf uh, as well. So you know, oh, do you play golf? Do you? I do, do you? really badly. Yeah, stick to the fishing. Quite yeah, wrong. That, that's that's what I, that's what I say anyway. Um, okay, so some, some which I, I actually found out relatively recently. I watched um, an interview that you did with um, is it Colin from the uh, Missing Salmon Yes uh, Alliance, and uh, something really interests me. Colin Ball, that's the one, yeah. So that really interests me. And he, he was talking about the um, migrating salmon and actually how many salmon actually return to um, to our rivers. And one thing that always, it's a hot topic at the moment to do with the rivers is like otters and pollution. Mm. And I know there's there's actually some certain action groups that have been set up to, you know, um, rally for this and to, to combat this. I mean, have you got any experiences on rivers where you've seen like pollution or... That's rivers that have been wiped out by otters. Um, are we talking about otters or are we talking about pollution? See, that's the question. Um, okay, so let's talk about like pollution first. Pollution first. There are a, so in my world in game fishing, fishing for things like trout and grayling, pollution is a very very serious matter. Um, specifically with grayling, for example. So what happens when there's a pollution incident, and if it's something that comes from the world of agriculture? you end up with all the invertebrates in the river suffering a huge loss. You know, all the inverts die, the little olives and all the gamorous, the tiny little shrimps that the fish live on, end up dying. And then, of course, the fish have got nothing to eat and the fish die. And also grayling, the lady of the stream, the classic clear water chalk stream fish, has got probably the smallest liver of any fish in our fresh waters. So they're hugely susceptible to pollution. If they suffer a pollution incident, you can wipe out, you know, a massive swathe of year classes of grayling that would destroy the, the grayling stocks in a river for, for years to come. So I have seen that happen. Not, not thank God, not massive losses. But there have been odd incidents on rivers like the Itchin, where there are salad watching plants and strange things going on with chemicals getting put in the water, where you go for a season and there just aren't any fish around in places where you know there should be and the water might look a bit funny and the weed doesn't look right and there's too much silt and you know something's happened and you know that you know someone's done something moody and um and it's affected the, the wildlife and it's it's horrendous i hate it it really drives me crackers yeah i mean like i said before i i keep koi and one of the one of the biggest things in in koi keeping is water quality mm. and it, everything has to be absolutely spot on so when i was listening to your interview and they were talking about um potentially fish not not moving back up from marine back into to the rivers um if the water quality in the river isn't uh, as good as what it should be then obviously taking through my brain, putting my coy kind of experiences, why would they move back? And I know right. it's a potentially a natural instinct for a fish to come up to breed and, and do whatever, but if the water quality is not there, then maybe naturally they're going to stay in the marine environment, which is horrendous. I don't think that the, even the guys from the Missing Salmon Alliance, this, the reason they're doing the study is because nobody's absolutely sure where those fish go, whether they are staying in a marine environment whether they are trying to migrate back and are being stopped in some way by obstructions or fishing or something else. Um, so I, that's the reason I think that this study is taking place. So hopefully in a little while, a couple of years maybe, we'll know a little bit more about where these fish go missing. Um, but I think if you're interested in just kind of wildlifey stuff, understanding what a salmon goes through 
to, you know, to be born in a river, go to sea and come back a few times and create this whole ecosystem where it, you know, it gener regenerates and, and creates new life is an extraordinary story. But I do have to say that be, the salmon thing is not the be all and end all for me. Um, I care about all, all kinds of fish in all kinds of environment. It's not just about game fish. And I, and I really want to emphasize, I know I give Husey a load of stick for being a carp angler, but we're all just people. And the reason we go fishing is because we love fishing. And what I really hate is the fact that, you know, the match anglers perceive that they hate the carp anglers and the carp anglers hate that, well, carp anglers hate everyone, let's be honest. Uh, sea anglers hate the course anglers, etc., etc. You know, I don't understand why angling isn't more of a brotherhood. Maybe that's why I've, because I've done lots of different types of fishing and enjoy all of it, even carp fishing, that I don't see why people can't just get on nicely. And if we all got on together, the sort of a, a little bit better, the kind of pollution stuff and the water quality issues and predation and all the other things that, you know, affect our sport would be a damn sight easier to deal with, don't you think? Totally. And I think sometimes... Um... I suppose banter gets taken out of context. I mean, the banter that you've got with Rob, um, some people would take that as, you know, that that's the way to do it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Whereas you, you're you're messing around and having having a bit of a laugh, where some people actually take it personally that, oh, this this guy's a fly fisherman, this guy's a match angler, you know, I'm carp, I'm not going to talk to him, mm. what he does is rubbish, blah, 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 which isn't, isn't the case. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's fishing. Yeah. Whether it's whatever the discipline is, the aim is the same to catch a fish. Whatever method you you choose to do that, what you prefer. Um, so quickly moving on to just the otters then. If you had any experience of stretches of rivers being yeah, wiped up, not by wiped otters, out. No, it's a hot topic. Not at all. Um, quite the opposite. I I think um, I keep a piece of river for my for my fishing club, which is uh, the River Meon, which is a couple of miles from my house, and I've got an otter that lives on the river, and I'm more than happy to see it every time I see it. I think it's a wonderful creature and I think it's got probably more right to be there than I have. Um, and I, I, you know, and if I tell you the last time I went fishing on my stretch of river, uh, which was about a week and a half ago, I had 22 fish, which is a lot of fish to catch from a little river like that. The otter's there because there's food there. Um, the carp angling scenario with otters is completely different, which is the biggest angling hand grenade that's ever been thrown into a room um, but you know as far as otters in a natural environment and on rivers are concerned I I have no problem with them being there at all that as I say they've got as much if not more right to be there than I have and, and you know what? I, I tend to agree with you I mean I was watching a um, I, I'm not going to mention any names a, a live feed where somebody was ranting about otters and um, the fact that some organisations haven't done what they said they were going to do, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's the, the same old chat over and over again. And then the next day, it was bad timing because Country File was on and it was a whole hour-long piece on otters and you know how they're helping the environment. And I think sometimes it just people just want to rant about something for, yeah, that's true. for ranting and sake. Look, let's be honest, the last year or 18 months has lit the fire under a lot of people. There's some very scared people out there, some people who are going through some very difficult times because of everything that's happened with the pandemic. And small things can be blown out of all proportion, um, you know, in an unrealistic way uh, and become a bigger issue than they ought to, perhaps. So you've got to kind of take this stuff with a pinch of salt and, and just try to apply a common sense approach to it. And I hope that's what I try to do. You know, I respect all creatures in, in the environment, 
Um, the one thing I won't um, countenance is kind of invasive species like mink and stuff like that, which shouldn't be around. Part of my job as a river keeper, when I do that job, um, I'm trained to dispatch mink if, I've, if we catch one. Um, I haven't thankfully had to do that yet, but I'm ready to do it if I need to. Um, an animal like a mink, for example, is a lot more invasive, I would suggest, than an otter because mink kill stuff for fun. You know, they, they'll yeah. rip chicks from a bird's nest to pieces without needing it for food. Um, they're, they're a, you know, a very aggressive predator and they'll do more damage than an otter if they're on your river. And I think a lot of people um, kind of, yeah, they don't distinguish the difference between mink and otter. No. Um, obviously, there's a big difference. Huge. Um, not 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 just size, but also from you know where they where they come from, the species and stuff like that. Um, again, I keep mentioning my koi pond, but it's it's like a fortress. You know, <laughs> it's completely completely locked down for that reason for mink. Um, I live in the countryside a little bit, and funny enough, I live miles away from a river, but they're still they're still around. Um, Do you know the the thing that I've always found interesting about the the argument that's blown up the last few years with with carp and uh, carp fishing and carp fisheries and uh, the otter issue is something um, that um, Simon Scott, the the fishery scientist, I've done a couple of films with Simon um, when he was at Sparshot, actually, I've not seen him for a while, but Simon's a really good bloke. I've I've got a lot of time for him and he's a very well respected um, angler and also an expert in the field. You know, there's not much he'd know about fish behaviour and stuff like that. But his point was, if a carp fishery stocks a pond full of carp and doesn't put a fence around it, basically it's like if you were a farmer having a field full of cattle and then being surprised that they'd all wandered off because you didn't put the fence up. You know, th- these are these are complicated um, creatures and they're, they're obeying their natural instincts to feed. So but basically by stocking a, a pond full of fish, you're essentially opening a big buffet. Unless you protect yeah. it, you know, and I know there is a lot of expense involved and I massively sympathise for those who can't afford to put fences up but have got a fishery to protect. It's a really difficult thing to have to, to sort out, isn't it? You know, and, yeah. and I know there's some help out there for certain people to do stuff about that. But it's, it's, you know, it's an issue that I understand why people get so upset about it, because we care deeply about what we're doing. We care deeply about the, you know, the species that we're trying to, to catch and look after because we're largely fascinated people we're desperately keen to understand their behavior and again going back to the problem solving thing solve the problem of what's going on so we can enjoy fishing for them it's a you know it's a a sport i think that you have an emotional connection to and when there's a threat to it perceived or otherwise people tend to get very prickly and that's completely understandable yeah so here's food for thought then do you you think the popularity of angling has so, so a lot of people will say that um the otter population is out of control blah 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 do, do you think that it, the popularity of angling as in more lakes popping up with big fish stocked in them um, and that kind of scenario has kind of um just let the otters breed more let the otters kind of you know take 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 rain because we're creating an environment that effectively is there that they're breeding ground really i suppose common sense dictates that if there are more opportunities for a creature that eats fish to feed then there'll be more creatures but honestly i don't know the answer to that question mm. i don't know if it is the yeah. case um, and I, d- I actually don't know if there are any accurate figures um, other than ones that are being you know thrown around by people who haven't done any research whether there are actually more otters than there were before i honestly don't know that 
So I can't really no. comment about that, to be honest. No, it, it's just it, it's it's a hot topic right now, isn't it? And you know, you've only got to open your Facebook feed and somebody's complaining about something to do with um, either otters or or pollution and stuff. But uh, anyway, thank Andy. We're approaching the hour mark. Thank you very much for your time, mate. Um, really appreciate Anytime. it. Uh, is there anything else you you'd like to add? Uh, no, not really. Just you know, everybody get out and enjoy your fishing. You know, and try and try and respect each other as much as you can and try and make friends and if you know if you've got the opportunity to take a mate who hasn't been fishing before try to open fishing doors for, for other people to enjoy and you know remember what you felt like the first time you caught your first fish and the first time that you experienced our fantastic sport and see if you can help grow the sport by introducing somebody else to it would be my you know my I suppose my biggest wish, I've done that with quite a few people, you get such a buzz out of it, and also helping people who've just started to get better. It's it's a passion of mine to try to improve our sport and to get more people enjoying it and respecting the environment. And I think when that happens, Mark, you end up with a situation where the more people who are looking at us and thinking how fantastic we are, the easier it is to deal with the perceived threats that we, we have to deal with, like you know predation, pollution, etc., it's then a situation where we become a bit of a majority of people rather than a, a strange minority dressed in strange clothing and, you know, staying in tents overnight and firing boilies into lakes and whatever else we do. We become not as big a mystery and people respect what we do. So I think growing our sport is a massively important issue and one that I'm very passionate about helping. And that's partly, I'm sorry to waffle, but partly why the television programme is so important to Husey and I um, because we understand the responsibility we have to tell the story of angling to as many people as we can get to see it. Yeah, so if you, if you get one person watching it that doesn't isn't into fishing and decides I'm going to go and buy myself a rod, and to be honest, I think we, we covered it on the last podcast, there's a lot of content on there now um, from you know how to spool up your reel to you know uh, anything. Anything you want to learn about is all online um either either in video format or like I said tv programs and people can learn very quickly um and start catching fish absolutely and uh, i think it's yeah and it was definitely um yeah it's definitely a good thing for the sport but anyway andy thank you very much and uh yeah have a nice uh nice trip out next time you <laughs> and go you, mate thanks ever so much great to talk to you